Well, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 29. We're going to be in verses 13 and 14. The passage is up there. I am privileged to bring you the Word of God today. Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Why in the world are we doing this? What, what are we doing here anyway? What's this worship service all about? Why do we do this? Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if we just stayed at home and we could just catch the podcast of the sermon later on this week? I mean, why do we do this? What are we doing here? I think we're all familiar with the Sunday school answer to those questions. You know, God and Jesus. And they happen to be good answers. We're here to worship God. And we're here to hear the Word of God. We're here to fellowship with God's people. We're here to sing songs to praise God. These are awesome answers. They're fantastic. They're right on the mark. And we know this because we read a psalm like Psalm 150. It says, praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound and praise Him with lute and harp. Amen. We are here to praise God and we're here to praise Him together and we're here to praise Him for His greatness, a greatness that we know about because He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. But you know, among us evangelical Christians, what all that praise and singing should look and sound like has been a source of tremendous debate and name-calling and even judgment and division over the last 50 years or so. Everything from music to clothing to style of prayer and preaching to the length of the pastor's hair. All of it has been hotly contested. And it seems like that everybody claims to have captured the market on what it means to worship God in a biblical way. Now part of the reason for this debate is that unlike in the Old Testament where God itemizes very carefully the order and form of worship, He does this in great detail in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, all that's no longer necessary because Christ was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. No more bulls and goats are needed. And so therefore those rituals are no longer needed. So what we've got in the New Testament is a very basic list of priorities for what should happen when we gather together to worship God. And we find this basic uh, list of priorities in Acts 2, verse uh, 42. And just before we read it, just to kind of set the stage for it, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has filled the brothers and, and they praise God in a miraculous way. Through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, they're praising God in languages they don't even understand or know. And yet the unbelievers who are standing around listening and watching, they understand because it's in their various languages. It's a miraculous thing. And then Peter delivers his great sermon and about 3,000 souls are saved. And so in that moment, a mega church is born. It's the very first Christian worship service. And Acts 2.42 lays out their priorities regarding how they worship God that day. 
and in the days that follow and in the years that follow all the way up till today. So verse 42 of Acts 2 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Well, there you go. There's our order of worship. Teaching, fellowship, and that surely included the singing of songs. They probably sang the Psalms, the Lord's Supper, and of course, prayer. This is the model we follow at WBF, and it's the model that most evangelicals churches follow. It is simple and clear, except we've got a lot of elbow room here to figure out what exactly this praise and worship and so on is supposed to look like and sound like. And brothers and sisters, I bet you dollars to donuts we've all got our very dearly held opinions about what our worship should look and sound like. And just as a demonstration, here's, here's what I mean. Just think of your own answers to these questions as I ask them. And uh, there's probably as many answers to these questions as there are people in the room. Is it okay to write down our prayers beforehand or should they all be spontaneous? Should we recite a creed or maybe the Lord's Prayer together on a regular basis or is that too mechanical? Is it too ritualistic and and rote? Should we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single time we meet or maybe not? Here at WBF, we only do it once a month. How long should the sermon be? Should we sing hymns? What, kind, what kinds of instruments are acceptable in worship? Is the organ acceptable? An orchestra, maybe? Or heavy metal guitar? A tuba, perhaps? I'd kind of like to hear that, actually. Well, needless to say, the style and form of worship are very near and dear to our hearts as evangelicals. And the sad thing is, is that church history has proven that most of us are even willing to divide and separate with other believers over style and form of worship. If we're not very careful and vigilant, we can become like Goldilocks who wanted the porridge and the chair and the bed that was just right. Only we're looking for the perfect worship experience. That's the new terminology, by the way. Right now, you are having a worship experience. And so we're looking for the perfect worship experience, one that suits our tastes and accommodates our ears, that feels just right. Now, here's the thing. When, when worship feels just right, we can fall into a sense of complacency about it. This doesn't happen all the time, but, but it can happen. It, worship can become too casual. It can become mechanical and and rote can become ritualistically driven it can become emotionally driven we can in the process forget about God's glory and majesty and we neglect our fear of God and we can end up thinking that an enjoyable time of singing and fellowship with a good message thrown in there somewhere is about all there is to worship But here's the question that we all need to answer. What is most important about worship to God? What's the thing that matters most about our worship to God? 
Well, we've got this template in Acts 2.42 so that we don't neglect the important elements of our gatherings. In fact, every third Thursday of the month, your worship team gathers over here on a Thursday evening and, and we discuss these things. And we have some fantastic conversations. It's, it's a wonderful time of fellowship and we get into some deep things and we ponder each one of these elements of the worship service And we also ponder this question about what matters most to God. And by the way, you're welcome to join us. The third Thursday of the month is this coming Thursday. It's at 6 o'clock right here. And so come and join the conversation. But you know, I think it's kind of of ironic that in our quest to worship God correctly and biblically, we can actually lose sight of God. This is a bad case of, of... not seeing the forest for the trees. This is exactly what happened to the early church. Uh, Only 25 years or so after that first Christian uh, congregation laid out the priorities for worship on the day of Pentecost, the Corinthian church becomes so divisive and belligerent and argumentative with one another that Paul has to write them a letter of correction. You see, the Corinthians were divided over their opinions, in this case, over matters of doctrine. And so Paul quotes from Isaiah 29.14 to admonish them. And he does so in 1 Corinthians 1.19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so since Paul has quoted Isaiah 29 here, let's turn back with Paul and let's take a look at that passage in Isaiah And let's look at not just verse 14, but also verse 13. So 13 and 14 of chapter 29 have a lot to say about our worship and our question regarding worship. What is the thing that matters most to God about our worship? The verses are laid out like this. In verse 13, God through Isaiah defines the problem. You see, there's a problem. And the problem is, is that the people's hearts are far from God. They're showing up for worship, but they're not really there. In verse 14, God declares the graceful consequences for their faraway hearts. That is, their own wisdom is going to perish in light of God's wisdom. God is going to gracefully discipline them in a way that's going to prove how worthy He is of worship. And so here's the big idea. Since God takes our worship seriously, so should we. Yet, worship is not about the form and style of it, even though there is such a thing as an unbiblical form and style. We can talk about that at another time. But worship is about our inward delight and reverence for God that it just materializes and bubbles up out of us into something that we can see, into loving obedience of God. True worship is something that can be seen because it's what's in our hearts and from the heart is what comes out of us. And so it's the condition of our hearts that matters most to God. There's the answer to our question. And so let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah 29 in verses 13 and 14. Let's dig in. Beginning in verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, 
And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. It's the word of the Lord. Well, the first thing we've got to do as we dig in is we need to, of course, remember who Isaiah is. Isaiah was a prophet, and he prophesied from about 740 to 700 B.C. This was during the decline of Israel. Both kingdoms of Israel, Judah to the south and Israel to the north, had ceased to worship God according to the law of Moses. The temple was shut down. Idol worship was rampant, and this neighboring pagan country called Assyria is threatening to take them over. Most of all of this is documented in 2 Kings. And so this humble man named Isaiah, this humble man of unclean lips, is called by God to do a very difficult thing, to speak the Word of God to people who are deaf and blind, as it says in chapter 6, verse 10. These people refused to listen to God's warning through Isaiah, his warnings of judgment if they don't return to God. Now, one day there is a new king of Judah named Hezekiah. He's the son of Ahaz. And Hezekiah established a variety of reforms in an effort to overcome Judah's neglect of God by his predecessors. He was a pretty good guy. 2 Kings 18, verse 3 says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And here's what Hezekiah did. The temple in Jerusalem was reopened. The idols were removed from the temple. The temple vessels that had been desecrated during Ahaz's reign were sanctified for use in the temple. The sacrifices were resumed. The places of idol worship were destroyed. And Hezekiah even destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had erected in the wilderness that we read about in Numbers 21. And Hezekiah did this so that the people wouldn't be tempted to worship the statue. Hezekiah organized the priests and the Levites so the religious services could resume. The tithe was reinstituted and plans were made to observe all the religious feasts that were called for in the law. Hezekiah did all he could to provide the perfect worship experience for the Jews. He did it to the letter of God's laws. He did it right in God's eyes. And yet in verse 13 of our passage we read this. And the Lord said, because this people, and this is where we got to pause for a second, because God is using some interesting phrasing here. This people, doesn't God usually refer to his people as my people? Isn't that the way he usually puts it? When God calls them my people, it's a term of connection and endearment, of loving ownership, of compassion and care. It reflects his faithfulness to keep his promise to Abraham. For instance, in Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And so God uses that loving kind of terminology in the Old Testament for his chosen people a couple hundred times. And yet here, yet here, my people become 
this people. And so there's a distance. There's some displeasure on God's part toward this people. The sense here is almost like, you know, when your mom finds an old sandwich in the couch and she picks it up with two fingers and looks at you and says, what's this? If only this people had had ears to hear, they would have understood how awful it was to hear God say to them, this people. In the third person, you're far away from me. What God says next explains why they are this people. In verse 13 of chapter 29, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Now we're getting to the heart of the problem, which is the heart. And so just think for a little bit about this with me. Way back when God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, and then when the people devoted their treasure and their effort and the best of their flocks for the purpose of worshiping God, there was life in that worship. It was heart service to God. And it had to be. Because they felt the sacrifice of loving God. They knew God's fearsomeness and His grace. And so they were willing to give so much to him. You know, I, I did the math on this. I, I think I've got it right. But when they first built the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting, you remember God told them to make certain things out of gold and certain things out of silver and so on and so forth. Well, the value of the gold that they used in today's dollars would be about $29 million. And we haven't even counted the silver and the copper and the bronze and the jewels and the carvings and the, the, the cloth and the embroidery work and the, the craftsmanship, the time that was spent on it, not to mention the value of the animals that were the prime stock that they had, but they offered them to God. You see, to the Jews... Their worship of God meant far more than an hour and a half once a week on a Sunday. Just read through Leviticus and Numbers and you're going to see it. It took planning and careful management of livestock and resources. It took time. And every day of the week, it took a great devotion to the duty of worshiping God. And they did that duty because they loved Him. And so the value of their worship experience in God's eyes didn't come from the value of the gold, but from the fact that God's people were willing to give it to Him. You see, their hearts were fully involved. They had a deep desire to please God. A deep desire to give Him the proper honor that was due His name because God had given them His law. He had revealed Himself to them. He had delivered Him by His grace over and over and over again. And they knew vividly what it says in Exodus 29.46, I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. They knew that and that's why they worshipped Him. And yet through Isaiah, God is speaking to this people 
who were giving him lip service and not heart service. They were going through the motions. Their hearts were empty toward God. There was no inward delight about God. Their worship was not a sweet, sweet sound in the ears of God. Now this isn't like one of those Sundays when we're just not feeling God. We're feeling numb to God. But somehow we know He's still there. We know He cares. We're just not feeling Him, but we are there to worship. No, these people were thinking that their rituals made them better people. And yet when they left the temple, they would lie and they would cheat. They'd be hateful and they would oppress the poor and they would ignore all ten of the commandments. In other words, they weren't obeying God's law even though Hezekiah gave them every opportunity to do so. They weren't living in a way that reflected God's holy character. They weren't living in obedience to God outside the temple. Now, that might start sounding a little familiar to some of us, right? Because the measure of our worship isn't that we showed up today or that we sang loudly or that we prayed eloquently. The measure of our worship is who we are on Monday morning. Are we going to love God enough tomorrow morning that we are a reflection of His character? Are we going to be willing then to subject our whole selves to His majesty? When something goes wrong tomorrow, is our, gonna, is our response going to be like that of David's as, as Richard read just a little bit ago in Psalm 63? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do we thirst for God like that? Do we thirst for Him so much that by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit we have put to death what is earthly in us for His sake, as it says in Colossians 3.5? You see, the problem that Isaiah is speaking about is that God's people were not willing to do that. They were not willing to put to death what was earthly in them. Their religion had become lip service, not life service. And so they turn to the formalities of worship to feel righteous, to feel religious, to feel good. But they had no interest in God. Now we can do a similar sort of thing. We can think that being here is what makes us good. You know, I I go to church. I go to church. We can think that Taking lots of notes during the sermons. sermon makes us good. I hope you are. We can even have good intention of reading those notes later on, and I hope you do. But Isaiah's point is that if we don't allow God's Word to change us, to cause us to truly draw near to God, then our piety is really based on nothing but thin air. So when we're really not interested in God, we we tend to turn to the forms of religion, to ritual and to rules. This is exactly what Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders with in Matthew 15. Jesus' disciples had not washed their hands before eating according to one of the Jewish oral traditions. And so the Jewish leaders were uh, upset with them. They were They objected to this. And so, in return, Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders about their own lack of compassion according to God's law. 
You see, the Jewish leaders meticulously supported the temple worship and its ritual, but they did it at the expense of a real relationship with the living God, and they did it at the expense of those who were in need. They did not display the compassion and the love of God. And so Jesus quotes our verse in Isaiah, in verse 13 of Isaiah, and then he goes on to explain more of what he means in Matthew 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In other words, it's disobedience and rebellion against God's law, which is what makes us unclean, not violating some man-made rule that was created in the vain hope of achieving righteousness. And so it's the sinful condition of our hearts that makes us unclean in God's eyes. And Jesus' point, of course, is that we've got to be washed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And hallelujah, he is the one who has the power to do that. At any rate, those Jewish leaders had reduced God's command to worship him to a moralistic human rule, not a divine reality. The Jews in Isaiah's day had the same problem, and we might have the same problem too. And so as as we approach every worship service, we want to make sure that we're engaged with God. For instance, our attitude, brothers and sisters, cannot be to passively wait for the worship team to draw us near to God. They simply do not have that kind of power. They are here to give us the opportunity to draw near to God. But they are not our worship. They cannot worship for us. And that's because worship is something that we participate in. This isn't something that happens to us. This isn't an event that we attend like a concert or a movie. We're not spectators. We're intimate participants. We're not partaking of worship. We're called to be immersed in the God in whom we worship. And that's because worship isn't just the singing part of the service, it's the whole service. And our worship is supposed to happen not only on Sunday morning, but every waking moment of our lives. And so we want our hearts to have a thirst for God like David's did. We want to thirst for God like Tom Brady thirsted for victory last Sunday, right? Even when the chips are down, even when the going is tough, even when things look bleak. Because our worship isn't based on our feelings or circumstances. Our worship is based on the excellency of God. And so as God reveals himself to us on Sunday through the preaching of the word, on Monday morning, we want to be living demonstration of what it says in our book. Well, that brings us to verse 14. God in verse 13 said essentially through Isaiah that because this people does not really worship me, and in verse 14, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. 
Well, as we said at the beginning, God declares here the graceful consequences for the Jews' faraway hearts. That is, their own wisdom is going to perish in light of God's wisdom. God is going to gracefully discipline them in a way that's going to prove how worthy He is to be worshipped. And we've got to understand a little bit of the backstory of this verse. These verses are in the middle of, of the second of three woe oracles or messages. These woes are warnings about the fact that since God's uh, people's, the, the, the worship of God's people was empty and they consistently rejected God, that, they, that that would have consequences, just as there's consequences for our own sin. And yet in the end, God would demonstrate His grace just as God through Christ forgives us even when our worship gets off track And we find ourselves more interested in ourselves sometimes. But God has grace on us. And He has grace on us and He disciplines us so that we're drawn back to Him. Well, the first woe in chapter 8 is a warning to the Jewish leaders not to follow the same path that the blind and drunken leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel had forged for them. These Uh, leaders of of the northern kingdom had refused to hear God's warning and they ended up causing their defeat and captivity at the hands of the Assyrians. And so Israel warns the Jewish leaders to trust God instead so they won't suffer the same fate. The second woe, which contains our verses, verses 13 and 14, predicts the future siege of Jerusalem, which is what we're going to see in a minute. And just the, the, this is a horrible fate to the Jewish mind that's brought about because the people are blind and drunk and have no wisdom, as it says in the first 14 verses of chapter 29. But the idea that Jerusalem, of all places, would be under siege or captured was just a, a, an absolutely horrific thing for the Jews to think about. Because in the thinking of the time, it would mean to many of them that the pagan gods were more powerful than the Most High God. And so you see what God is going to do. He's going to test their faith. In the third woe, the people deny God's sovereign power, verses 15 and 16, and yet there's going to come a day when God in His grace opens their eyes and gives them understanding, verses 17 through 24. Now, all these three woes stress the need for these blind and drunk and scoffing and unwise leaders and people just to open their eyes, to humble themselves before God and to trust Him and to learn from His wisdom. And so as King Hezekiah and his advisors consider this very real threat from the pagan nation of the Assyrians, they've got Isaiah's words just ringing in their ears. And so what do they do? They ignore him. They ignore him. And their desperate search for protection for God's people, they ignore God. So instead, Hezekiah and his advisors, they decide to try to enlist the help of the Egyptians. Sounds like a great idea. So the, the, Judah lacked the horses and chariots that'd be needed to defend against the Assyrians. So since the Egyptians had plenty of horses and chariots, they turned to them hoping that the Egyptians would save them. 
And so God, speaking through Isaiah, calls Hezekiah and his advisors stubborn children for seeking out the Egyptians. And then in verse 31, or in uh, chapter 31, verse 1, God says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Those are strong words. Woe to you. Woe to you for not looking to me, the Holy One of Israel. Woe to you for not consulting the Lord. Well, we can predict this. Isaiah prophesied it. Their allegiance, their alliance with with Egypt ultimately fails. And the Assyrians invade and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And this is exactly what it means in verse 14 that God was going to do wonderful things. Because wonder here, the wonderful is both positive and negative. This is grace-filled discipline. In Hebrews 12, 7, we read that God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God is just simply not going to accept empty and heartless worship. Because he who is worthy deserves far more than lip service. He deserves our hearing and our doing what he says. God is willing as a loving father to allow us to go through trials in order to turn our faces and our hearts back to him in worship. Well, Hezekiah, he is a stubborn child. And once again, he tries a human device to bring about peace. He buys a truce from the Assyrians. And what does he buy it with? Well, he takes the gold and the silver from the temple and he gives it to the Assyrians. The sad thing is, it's only a temporary solution. The, The truce doesn't last long and before you know it, the Assyrian king is back making vicious threats against Jerusalem. Very intimidating guy. But God makes a promise through Isaiah in chapter 37 to Hezekiah that he will protect Judah and Jerusalem. And finally, finally, Hezekiah decides to stop listening to his advisors and he decides to trust God instead. And so he worships God. He worships God. And he prays for deliverance. And here's the beginning of his prayer in chapter 37, verse 16 of Isaiah. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And in verse 20, he closes his prayer with this. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. He's definitely worshiping God. And so because of that, God promises him in Isaiah 37, 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God is going to save Jerusalem for his own glory. 
And look how he does it in verse 36. This is absolutely incredible. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the early morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Wow. God did do wonders, didn't he? He did wonders in a wonderful way. He did those wonders in such a way as to discipline those who would not worship Him so that they would be drawn back to Him. And He did it in a way to prove the foolishness of the wisdom of Hezekiah and his advisors. And so it really was true that the wisdom of their wise men perished in verse 14. And the discernment of their discerning men was hidden. And yet through it all, God saved Jerusalem. He kept His promise. Hezekiah had been depending on human wisdom to save Judah and Jerusalem. But when he decided to trust God, oh my goodness, he found out how worthy God is of worship and how true that God is to His Word and how powerful and mighty He is. Well, here's what we can take home from all this today and maybe bring back with us next Sunday when we worship again together. Here's what we've learned today. That God takes our worship seriously. But far more than what songs we sing or what our order of worship is or the form of it, the most important thing to God regarding our worship is our hearts. Worship is about our inward delight and reverence for God that just materializes into an outflow of love and obedience for Him. True worship is is something that can be seen because it pours out from our hearts. And so it's the condition of our hearts that matters most to God. The only way that our hearts can be in the right condition is that we trust in His only Son, the one who negated the need for the bulls and the goats to be sacrificed on our behalf because Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And my friends... Only somebody who who puts their trust in Christ is able to worship God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is only through his perfect sacrifice that we are able to truly draw near to God. We read this in Hebrews 10, verses 20 and 22. These verses declare that we draw near by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his faith. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, it is Christ who makes us clean. It is Christ who even makes us worthy to worship Him. It's not the songs that we sing, as edifying as they are. And it's not our opinions about worship that make us holy. It's not even this worship service that makes us holy. It is Christ. It's Christ who cleanses our hearts from the inside out. And because of what He's done, then we worship Him. 
And so let me ask you, friend, do you want to be clean? Do you want to worship God? Then put your trust in Jesus Christ. Isaiah kept pleading for Hezekiah to put his trust in God. And when he finally did, he found out that God is truly trustworthy. And that God is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. So I'm pleading with you today. Put your trust in Christ. When you survey the wondrous cross, that song we just sang a few minutes ago, what do you see? Well, I can tell you what I see. I see a great God. A God who came in the flesh, who loved me that much, and who loved his Father in heaven that much. And he lived a perfect life, and then he died on that cross so that I could be forgiven. And I know what I've done. And God knows what you have done. And without him, we are unworthy to be in his presence. But Christ made the way by forgiving us of our sins. But we can never forget this because when I look at that cross, I also see an empty cross. And it's empty because the Lord Jesus rose on the third day and he defeated my arch enemies, sin and death. And that's grace. Just as God sent his angel to save Jerusalem, God has sent his son. And this time, with the coming of his son and the grace of his son and the work of his son, he is saved far more than a city. He can save your soul for all of eternity today if you will only open your eyes and see his salvation. Brothers and sisters, in the meantime, we have a gracious God who even though when we make worship about any number of other things besides himself, he is faithful and he is loving and graceful enough to discipline us and to remind us of who our worship is about. You see, these two verses in Isaiah are a call to all of us to be reminded of what we're doing here every Sunday. And what are we doing here? We are thirsting after God, just like David. And so whether it's by song, or by feeding on God's word, or an encouraging word spoken by a brother or sister in this fellowship of believers, or when we pray together, God wants our worship experience to be all about him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.